From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Nice to be with you on this Monday morning. And we've got a cracker show lined up for you today. We're going to be doing a little bit of everything in the travel feature. We are talking to the mad swimmers, a bunch of guys and girls who decided it would be a good idea to swim across the Dead Sea. As they say in Israel, med, red and dead. That's all the seas that they are in Israel. So we're interested to hear what it is that they're doing and why Jean Craven in particular would want to swim across the Dead Sea. But first up, just after the break, we're going to be speaking to Eliana Mazels. She is from a group called the Tikva Fund. They are a group of Jewish conservatives, people who deal with mainly the Republican Party, but not exclusively. And she's just written an interesting article, uh, which we'll hear about, dealing with uh, Jews, Trump, uh, conservative values in America, and where she feels that conversation is going. And uh, this particular segment, we're going to get particularly intellectual. We're going to be looking into the future of the Jewish people, at least uh, one segment of them, I think, and, and asking some very, I hope, interesting questions about where that is going. Uh, you will have seen, perhaps after particularly, I guess, uh, Trump's election to the U.S., a number of people writing about the state of America, about the state of the world, and indeed also the state about the Jewish people. And one of perhaps the more interesting perspectives that was created uh, in the wake of this, I don't know if it was in the wake of or because of, we guess we'll find out, was an article written in Commentary magazine, uh, which is an opinion magazine very much focused and associated with uh, conservative and right-wing viewpoints of jury in America. And they put out a, a a piece by Eric Cohen and Eliana Mazels about the future of Jewish conservatism, if that's a term, and where it's going and what does it actually mean. And uh, quite a lot of interesting uh, aspects that we're going to be looking into today and the people who are going or the person rather is going to be helping us do that is one of the writers of that article and uh, she is Alana Mazels and she's the director of strategic initiatives at the Tikva Fund uh, talking to us about this particular article. Alana, thank you so much for joining us on the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Benji. So first of all, just tell us what is Tikva? Uh, well, Tikva is a private educational foundation that was founded by a man named Zalman Bernstein. He also founded a, a better-known uh, foundation called Abichai, and we're based in New York. And our mission is to try and cultivate intellectual leadership, uh, both within the Jewish world and then more generally on issues that affect uh, the Jewish community in both the United States and in Israel. So um, to do that, we basically work in three different project areas uh, across three very broad topics. Um, and the first is that we run educational programs. We offer paid, selective, uh, text-based study programs that are taught by expert instructors and practitioners from academia, from government, from the rabbinate, from journalism and other fields. And those programs delve into um, Jewish and Western philosophical readings on designated topics. So you'll go from like a week to well over a month and there are different different levels, so high school level or college level or professional level. Um, and for each of these opportunities, we're trying to reach individuals with some sort of demonstrated promise to lead and to influence Jewish discourse, again, in America, in Israel, occasionally um, from Europe too. And the concept is going to range across a, a very broad range of subjects. So it's anything from political, um, political economy, 
to Zionist text study, to uh, the ethics of war, to the study of the idea of friendship, to the understanding of religious liberty, and a whole series of other topics. And then in addition to the educational programs, there are two other big project areas. One is that we support various media projects in the U.S. and Israel. So um, if people have ever read Mosaic magazine that's supported by Tikva or the Jewish Review of Books, uh, we have a podcast that we put out regularly. So I'm taking taking notes on on your skill. Um, and there's a video event series. And then um, lastly is that we do make some select grants to, to educational institutions with compatible missions. Well, having so, having yeah. watched some of your podcasts, I can tell you that I'm, I'm taking notes or have taken notes. So uh, don't worry too much about that. Uh, very interesting work that you do. Uh, can you start by telling us why this particular article that you, that you wrote? Uh, sure. So... I mean, this the article is, is mainly reflective of um, of the views of, of me and of the executive director of Tikvos, uh my boss. Um, and I think that the the core reason would be that you know we're Jewish, we're American, we care very deeply about our people and community as well as um, America generally, and we think that the thriving of Jewish life is obviously critical to the former and important to the latter. So we think um, that at this point there may be an opportunity to advance a series of ideas relating to religious liberty, relating to educational policy, uh, relating to a sober assessment of anti-Semitism and a strong stance on Israel and the importance of family life, all of these ideas that are generally um, talked about in a somewhat different way by the organized Jewish community, but that we think are important, they said, to the thriving of, of, of uh, Jewish life. And we were particularly alarmed, as many others have been, by um, what seems to be I don't want to sound too fatalistic, but the, you know, statistically speaking, there's, there seems to be something of a cultural disintegration and a, and a demographic crisis in American Jewry. And um, the seminal piece of work on that was the Pew Research Report on American Jewry, which I can go into if you like, but I don't want to filibuster. Um, or depress us. Short days, what? Or, or depress us. <laughs> or de- yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> um, not, certainly not at the eight-minute mark. Um, but the idea is that we're trying to offer a, a corrective to what we think um, at this point are perhaps theological and cultural and political ideas that have not really served the Jewish community well as Jews, even though obviously we're, we're um, a very successful part of American society. Now, what's interesting for me in this particular piece that you've done is that you've targeted at uh, a, a, a certain segment of the Jewish community, although you're writing at the whole Jewish community of America, you, you've kind of singled out uh, some people, and particularly, I guess, Jews who uh, are Republican. Um, it seems to be a, a big part of, of what you've written about. I mean, is there such a thing? Aren't Jews just Democrats uh, by birth? <laughs> Um, well, they, they might as well be in most in most elections, but that's actually been changing. And I, I just want to make a quick note that um, conservatism and liberalism actually they sort of span party lines. You're right that today they're they're more identified with one party or another as the rhetoric of the parties has gotten farther apart. But you could, in theory, be a conservative Democrat or a more liberal Republican. And um, uh, are there Jews who are Republicans? Right. So in the past century or so pretty much every election has been majority Democrat vote on the part of the Jews. But you have had a swing vote for Republicans. And, you know, what made the difference between, let's say, the 60% and the 90% that went Democrat um, often related to Israel. Um, And then there's, so that's one kind of segment of jewelry that votes depending on, on, you know, 
on the priority of, of a given Jewish issue at the moment, and they will switch parties. Um, and then there's a sort of increasing, um, at the national level, not so much at local and state yet, but there's an increasing uh, national level Republican vote in the Orthodox community, which tends to share more of its cultural and political values, oddly enough, with like evangelical Christians than they do with the majority of American Jews who are, who are not Orthodox and tend to be pretty solid le- solidly left in many respects. Um, and there's also different immigrant communities. The Russian community, the Syrian community, tend to be more to the right um, because of you know the lessons that they've learned living under totalitarian regimes and uh, and many aspects of the right, whether it's lower taxes or again a strong stance on uh, national security or a certain affinity for Israel that they they're attracted to. Um, so those are some of the groups that you can sort of easily pinpoint. And then there are there's a floating. Jewish vote uh, that that does go right, but as you've noted, it's a small, relatively small number. What about inside the Republican Party itself? Um, the, the Jews, I think, used to be at the very least um, considered to be constitutional conservatives, the kind of people we would have seen with George Bush. Uh, are there Jews that are sort of connected in with the, the current uh, status of the Republican Party? Uh, well, you're touching on, on something of a sort point uh, in Washington at the moment in, in the Jewish world. Um, I actually just got back from a week surveying that. But it's that was, I mean, that's certainly one group of, of uh, Jews on the right, and they tended to be more neoconservative. There are plenty of Jews who have been affiliated to other parts of the right, right? It's a, both the right and the left are basically shorthand for all sorts of different political schools that tend to align because of a shared interest. Um, and so there's, there's a bit of a division right now between what we're going to call the never-Trumpers, and, and those are people that um, sort of aggressively opposed uh, Trump being at the head of the Republican Party, and still many of them do, and, and find his leadership to be problematic. Um, but his, his administration and, you know, he, first of all, he got a good um, 24% of the Jewish vote period. But, you know, his administration is also just... Uh, Flowing, or I wouldn't say overflowing, but it's got it's got a ton of Jews in it, and that's once you get past uh, obviously Ivanka and Jared. They're just people all around him, helping guide Israel policy, helping guide domestic policy. There are plenty of Jews affiliated to, to this administration. Very interesting. Now, with these particular groups that you aim the article at, and one of the issues that you have talked about in the article and both on the interview. Are, are the issues of anti-Semitism and, and Israel. And you suggest in the article that you think that these particular groups that you've spoken about before have a very special role to play in dealing with those two agendas. Uh, how do you see them uh, engaging in this role? Well, I actually want to broaden that a bit because I, I don't think that that should be confined to conservative Jews. I think it, it probably necessarily will be, but this is really an open call. Um to people to, you know, sort of take a very sober approach to our security as a community and, uh, and to the security of, of our brethren abroad. And um, I think you have a few things going on there. The first is that there's a tendency um, by American Jews who, as I've said, do find their sort of cultural and political home on the left to assume that there is more of an enemy coming on the right. And there's a whole series of reasons for this. Um some of them are historical. Some of them are just the simple fact that the left tends to see the world um, in sort of oppressor and oppressed groups. And so Jews see themselves as an oppressed group. They see the right as the traditional oppressive. Um, and uh, and they're sort of wedded to this dogma. And you've seen um, 
since the election, certainly, that there's been uh, a lot of agitation about anti-Semitism coming from the right, and which I think has, has been overblown, and it's probably a different discussion, but um, very little now and really in the past number of years about the anti-Semitism that's been growing on American campuses uh, in the form of BDS, which is, which is basically promoted by uh, more progressive uh, groups, um, progressive and occasionally also uh, Muslim. Um, and you have also seen, you know, organizations effectively turning a blind eye to the rise of this more progressive anti-Israel leaning into, you know, depending on how you define anti-Israel. I, I, su- I suggest that there's not that much of one between anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. So you've had an extreme uh, rise of sort of anti-Israel people within the Democratic Party leadership. Um, and all of those things really deserve to be called out, not as a partisan exercise, but as part of a, as a, a more global assessment of the place of Jews in, in the States. And with that, by the way, I will say that Jews are are statistically like the most well-liked minority in the state. So I don't want to paint too dark a picture again, but these things need to be addressed. Um, and then beyond that, I think that there is probably um, a role for for Jews who can do this to to be ambassadors between the Jewish world and the more philo-Semitic parts of, uh, of the right, which have basically sort of been taken for granted or, you know, or regarded with suspicion because... Uh, of the theological orientation that they're coming from. Um, but those are the two things that I think conservative Jews and then Jews more broadly should be thinking about. Um, and on the Israel point, I'll also add that, in general, um, Jews have taken kind of, uh, have really emphasized bipartisanship as important to the U.S.-Israel alliance, and I would totally agree that it's an important aspect of it. But it can't be the end goal, and especially as the parties drift apart, it can't be the end goal, because what it will end up doing um, when you think about U.S.-Israel policy, that because you're trying to get agreement between two very different sides, you're always going to end up going for the lowest common denominator. And I think that conservative Jews, if they're just attempting to articulate an agenda that they think is healthy for both the United States and Israel, have the ability to paint um, a much more vivid and specific picture of what they think that alliance should look like, because they're speaking to to one side, but they can articulate that vision, and then that will be, that'll be on the table in a way that it hasn't been for a very long time. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review, and we're discussing the state of American Jewry on the program today with Aliana Mazels, who is from the Tikva Fund. We'll be back just after this. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 Chai FM. You're back with 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. And we have online today Eliana Mazel. She's from the Tikva Fund. And she is talking to us today about an article that she penned talking about some ideas that appeal particularly to Jews on the right of the American Jewish spe- spectrum and, and discussing where she thinks uh, the community should be going uh, in general and in, in particular uh, with these uh, right-wing uh, or conservative uh, Jewish thinkers and activists. Now, one of the the positions that you took in the, in the article, Eliana, which I thought, from my perspective, was uh, quite interesting, and I know this is a very American debate that doesn't happen very uh, uh, elsewhere in the in the world, but but my understanding was was that you were arguing for the state to give money to religious based schools, which uh, seemed to me to be quite unusual because I've seen a lot of Jewish groups seeming to oppose any kind of connection between uh, obviously 
you, you guys in America like to call it church and state, uh, but, but, you know, basically giving money towards, uh, private, uh, educational institutions. And you've taken quite an interesting line. Would, can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Uh, sure. I mean, it's not, it's not actually, um, an affirmative. I mean, there's, the, the position taken in the article regarding direct funding of schools is simply that you fund, you should be funding, um, security and other neutral needs that you would fund for any other type of school. Uh, but I should note before getting into that, that historically there were in fact, uh, state funded religious institutions back in the 19th century. It was actually a shift in mentality and culture that brought us to the position where, you know, there was this idea that this, the government should only fund public schools and that religious schools are effectively on their own. And so if you ever chose to put your child in a setting where you could educate them and effectively grow their character and their knowledge in the way that you saw fit as a religious person, you were entirely on your own and now shouldering that burden without any sense of relief at the same time as you're paying taxes for students who are going to public institutions. Um, and so what we were arguing for was, again, more neutral treatment of religious and, and uh, public school students, meaning that they'll, they'll have access to some of the same resources, and, and some of that has been less controversial in recent years. Um, and then there are a whole range of what we call school choice policies that are aimed at making, um, well, the choice of education, school choice, uh, more affordable and higher quality. And there, I'd say that even, you know, even within the Jewish community that has histor- historically been um, very pro-sending one's kids to public school for the purposes of integration and Americanizing um, and sort of being exposed to a diverse society, even within that group, um, you see increasing uh, openness to some of those policies. So, for instance, I'm just going to throw out, you know, tax credits or something where, you know, where the organized Jewish community was once very against the use of this policy and now seems there seems to be a bit of a shift. Um, other other policies like vouchers, you know, where the government actually directly returns some money to you for use um, in, you know, in, uh, in paying for your private school tuition, that's more controversial. Uh, the basic idea here, however, is that um, it's not really about any one of these policies. It's about the autonomy of a family to decide how they want their children to be raised and, and to have the maximum resources that they have earned um, to be able to do that. Uh, and then also the fact, you know, again, to not to not end up sending uh, children to institutions where by virtue of the fact that they're being educated as religious Jews, religious Christians, religious Muslims, uh, they are necessarily... Um, deprived of certain resources that you're paying for in the public schools. Does something like this concern you uh, from the perspective of, okay, you know, I can understand it from a Jewish perspective. The article goes into quite a lot of depth about the difficulties that the Jewish community has had in America in financing uh, Jewish schools. But, you know, would you be concerned, for example, that if you had a Christian school that was suddenly getting this sort of support or a Muslim school or you know, a Hindu school or whatever, that, that this might create a uh, very uh, narrow sort of citizen, someone who uh, maybe be, is more potential to be radicalized or, you know, to to not be prepared to play their part in terms of uh, American society? Right. I think that's a great question, and it's one that, that I think is a driving... That that question and, and sort of answering it in in the negative is one of the reasons that many Jews feel that this is a terrible idea. Um, but I would actually submit that they're they're incorrect, and, and there are a couple of reasons for it. I mean, obviously, if you have people who are in an insular environment, 
it may be easier to convey certain messages. The entire point of of, of putting a child in one institution and not another. Um, but on the whole, I'd say that if you look at the American public, it's a it's a healthy and vibrant place. And what you're allowing to happen is the rise of different institutions who are pushing different cultural and religious perspectives that contribute to a diverse society in a way that mainstreaming everybody through public education actually won't. Public education is that you receive a certain a certain product. Everybody has to go through it, regardless of who and what they are and who and what they want to be. Um, and there are actually studies, uh, to my surprise even, that suggest that kids who go to private institutions uh, end up coming out more tolerant than kids who go to public schools. And I think my own interpretation of this, not being an expert on that particular set of studies, I think it's probably because you go to an institution where you realize that you are a minority in a larger society and that you are presenting one, you're, you're representing one view rather than the view. Um, so that concern, while I can see why it would be raised, um, I don't, I don't think it's practical. I don't think it weighs against the need of the Jewish community and of other religious communities to have this implemented and simply the justice in it. Now, the other aspect of the article, I mean, there were so many that you really have to sit down. Uh, you can't even do this over, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning. You, you're going to need to, like, print it out and uh, read it over Shabbat or something like that because it really does go quite a lot in, into death. But one of the other big issues which you talked about is freedom of religion uh, in, in the United States in particular. Uh, you suggest that somehow that issue has sort of gone over to the other side so that we're no longer looking at a, a situation where the United States is focused solely on promoting the idea of people being able to have their own religious practice, but that there, there's a movement towards kind of coercing people into a particular set of values, regardless of what um, their, their religious background is. I mean, is that a is, is that a, a correct analysis of, of what you guys are trying to say? I think that there's definitely a, a movement to do it. Um, and it's one that we should be cautious about. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it, there there are examples in the article I think that make this that make this fairly clear. This is a it's a pretty recent development in terms of the attempt to be quite as coercive as we're we're describing. Um, and so, I mean, if you're thinking about some of the the examples that we mentioned, um, you had let's say. You know, we have nas- nationally mandated healthcare now. I know that this is not super radical for other countries, but in the states, it was um, it was a big move. And with that came a whole series of different regulations and obligations that suddenly were imposed on employers and on, on service providers, on medical care providers um, that they previously hadn't had. Okay, and so you had a clash between uh, you know the life that existed before these regulations were suddenly came, suddenly came into play, and, and the life that they wanted to push people towards. So some of these issues, for instance, were that, um, you know, there was an exemption for religious institutions, let's say, to not have to provide contraceptives or abortive patients, right? Let's say Catholics believe that providing abortive patients is making them complicit in abortion, which they consider to be a sin. Um, but there was no such provision for employers who were religious but didn't operate religious institutions. Um, actually, yeah. And so you've had you've had cases where they've come and they basically said, you know, we need to we need to somehow get around this um, because we can't we can't be party to it. You've had suits where bakers and florists have been sued not because 
uh, as has often been wrongly reported, they wanted to discriminate against gay people generally, but because they were specifically solicited to provide services for gay wedding ceremonies, where they as religious Christians did not want to be a part and wanted to refer the business to any other place that would do it. Um, you've had uh, you've had pharmacies that were forced to choose between continuing their business and carrying um, carrying uh, certain certain pills that they didn't necessarily want to carry. And so um, all of these things are are problematic. You've had also, I mean, in the Jewish community, you've had um, issues with uh, uh, dress codes in in stores where people have been uh, where the city has at least tried to intervene in that respect. Uh, you've had legislation and regulations passed to um, try to penalize employers potentially who don't use the uh, specific pronoun that a transgender employee may require. I mean, so you're, what you're what you're seeing is that there's a clash between people who are living out traditional lives um, and sort of new progressive mores that are being um, imposed effectively by effectively by uh, by law, right, the compliance, and there's no serious protection for religious people, uh, well, I mean, there's the First Amendment, but there's there's increasingly a move to try and strip the protections for religious people because um, there's less of a cultural emphasis on the importance of traditional religion, and in fact, there have been uh, prominent cases in which, um, you know, religious freedom, religious liberty has... Uh, Effectively been recharacterized as bigotry, as racism, as, you know, as basically a cloak for discrimination. And so there's this cultural clash right now that I think is, is problematic and that, you know, we need to be very vigilant about. Now what uh, have, do you have to say around the, the you know, the fact that you, you spoke earlier about conservatism being potentially in, in both sorts of both of the parties uh, and, and going across party lines and so there's potentially a larger coalition here in terms of, of Jewish action but obviously the, the Democratic Party uh, is, is still an important part of the politics of the country uh, do you yeah. see them potentially becoming uh, more of a, a quote unquote problem uh, in, in sort of the issues that you've addressed in this article well, I mean, right now they they are the home of the of the progressive philosophy. Um, so it, it's possible that that's the case. Um, I try I try to be optimistic about these things, and uh, I, you know, whenever you're talking about parties and crowds in the abstract, you have to sort of make these huge decisions about what what is or isn't going to happen, or how they will or will not act. And I I constantly put that up against a general faith that American society. Um, still has a lot of open channels for discussion and for dialogue. Um, but, yeah, there's, I mean, if, if we're going to keep it at the level of the abstract, it looks like the Democrats, um, you know, specifically regarding this set of ideas, that it's finding a more and more comfortable and prominent home in the party, um, whether it's on Israel or on religious liberty. Um, you know, there's an entire progressive worldview that's not particularly friendly to the West, and Israel's a small part of it. Um, and that that is something that is not just in the Democrat Party, but it's something where we're encountering problems on the campuses um, and where it's sort of reinforced by by media messaging. And so, um, you know, the Democrats are, are a part of that larger picture, but within that larger picture, I'd say that perhaps the prognosis is not so good at the moment. And how do you see these principles in a way of a kind of Jewish conservatism versus 
general conservative Americans? I mean, do you think that there's a huge difference between the sort of things that uh, you're putting on paper here versus what other conservatives in America might be considering as their political program? Um, certainly there's a lot of overlap, right? So the school choice, I mean, and, there, and the reason that there's a lot of overlap is because you will find, I think, many more tradition-minded people on the conservative side of the spectrum. And so this speaks to people who are tradition-minded almost regardless of their tradition, with the exception of, um, I'd say, the emphasis on sort of the Jewish conception of the family, on uh, the fight against anti-Semitism, and obviously on, on Israel. But questions of uh, religious liberty and questions of school choice, um, those are... I think good for America, and, and within that, you know, you will find plenty of American conservatives putting a, a premium on their importance. Um, so, with the th- three issues that I mentioned, I think make this much more targeted to the Jewish community. Um, but in general, there's obviously going to be significant overlap. It's just that this is this is an agenda that required articulating um, because people really haven't, for the most part, put all of these different in- instincts and interests together on paper. And the fact that they're there, I think, probably allows, and we hope will allow, for a broader effort to kind of talk about them and advance them um, in a more targeted way. And what has been the reaction of the article um, in the press, in amongst activists, amongst the Jewish community? Well, um, it's been overwhelmingly positive so far. But in fairness, given the, the venue in which it was placed, possibly the best possible, you know, the best possible venue for it, um, I think that might have been part of it. And we're going to be working to repackage it in smaller smaller pieces uh, in other venues to see if we can reach out to um, an even larger crowd. Um, and, uh, and beyond that, we're also going to be holding a conference around these same ideas that, again, we're, you know, we're trying to push to, to see exactly how far it reaches in terms of the Jewish community across the political spectrum and across the religious spectrum. Yeah, certainly a very interesting uh, academic project. Eliana, if people are interested in the work uh, of Tikva, uh, perhaps Mosaic, or even they want to see this article for themselves, where can they uh, do it and find it? All right. So um, two different websites. In Tikva, the work of Tikva generally can be found at tikvafund.org, T-I-K-V-A-H-F-U-N-D.org. And for information about this conference, which um, is tied to the article, and, you know, sort of has a crystallization of our principles. And, you know, the conference itself is going to be amazing and have great speakers, including Ron Dermer and Charles Krauthammer and Elliot Abrams and Ruth Weiss. For information about all of that, just jewishleadershipconference.com. And there's a PDF of the article on that site. Oh, there you go. And if you want to read the original article, it's uh, a Jewish conservative manifesto, and it's on Commentary Magazine. Uh, very, very interesting reading. Whatever part of the Jewish spectrum you're on, uh, certainly gives some some ideas. Um, can show you that Jewish right wingers haven't run out of ideas, which is uh, sometimes something that <laughs> is thrown at them. Um, Eliana Mazels, thank you so much. Uh, really, really interesting speaking to you, and good luck uh, with with all your work. Thank you, Benji. That was Eliana Mazels of the Tikva Fund joining us there from America.